This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So, science and Buddhism. Uh, there's been a seeming antagonism between science and religion uh, for many, many years, for hundreds of years perhaps. Uh, Socrates was condemned to death because his teaching of um, rational philosophy was said to turn the young men of Athens against the gods. Socrates himself, of course, didn't didn't reject the gods, but um, it was said that his approach caused the young men uh, to reject the gods. Therefore, he was condemned to death. A long time later, well over a thousand years later, almost 2,000 years later, um, Galileo spent the last nine years of his life under house arrest for his discovery that the sun, and not the earth, was the centre of the solar system. So we can see that uh, Christianity and conflict, uh, Christianity and religion, uh, Christianity and, I'll get it right in a minute, uh, Christianity and science have uh, long been in conflict. Um, This goes on even to to the present day. Now, I think that this conflict uh, has occurred primarily because both the scientists and the Christians have been overly literalistic in their interpretation of the Bible. So it's like I think both sides have come into conflict because of um, over uh, over literalistic interpretation of the Bible. And since it's... uh, mainly being Christianity that has had the, uh, the upper hand, had the power, held the power, um, and I think probably still has in many ways, still has, still does hold the power. Uh, it's generally the scientists who've been imprisoned or executed. Um, I was trying to think of an example of where uh, scientists have um, executed or imprisoned um, religious people, but I couldn't actually think of one. Uh, maybe some of you can uh, can think of an occasion like that. However, I think this this is because um, in the West it's been Christianity that's been the the dominant uh, the dominant religion. I think it could have been quite different uh, had it been Buddhism that had originally, as it were, come into into contact uh, with science. If it had been Buddhism, I don't think there would have been the same kind of sense of conflict. Uh, Even these days, for example, the Dalai Lama says uh, to his monks that um, uh, on matters uh, concerning science, if science comes up with a view that is contrary to the Buddhist view, then drop the Buddhist view, drop the Tibetan view. You know, if it's discovered, for example, that Mount Meru is not the centre of the universe, then let's, let's drop that idea and um, you know, go by what the scientists said. So Buddhists, I think, would 
generally be quite um, comfortable with uh, with a scientific approach. Um, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll give my reasons for that uh, a little bit later on. So an example, and this example really is going to form the basis of my talk. As we all know, in the middle of the 19th century, Darwin and Wallace, we mustn't forget Mr. Wallace, uh, realised that species evolved gradually in dependence upon the conditions of their environment. From very simple organisms to more and more complex ones. This was a radical revolutionary view, which of course went against um, Christian doctrine. Now this view, this view of the evolutionary process, has been applied in all fields of science. Um, From, for example, the evolution of the universe itself, to the evolution of language and the evolution of ideas. So this idea of evolution, the idea that um, from one set of conditions arises something else and from that new set of conditions something else arises and in this way things progress. Now the Buddha's great insight into the nature of reality is often expressed as his realisation that all things arise in dependence on mutually interpenetrating conditions. Um, All things arise in dependence upon conditions, is how it's usually expressed. So again, a very, very similar idea, not exactly the same, but a very similar idea. Because of a certain set of conditions, things arise, producing a new set of conditions out of which other things arise. So the idea of evolution is one, if, if not in, in, in sort of, uh, if not exactly, is at least in essence shared by both science and Buddhism, by modern science and modern Buddhism. But I think there's, um, there's more to it than this. So I want to consider the methods, uh, again very, very crudely, but consider the methods by which science and Buddhism come to their understanding of truth. So let's go back to natural philosophy. Natural philosophy was truth revealed by investigation. Natural philosophers looked at the world, they studied the world, and from their investigations they came up with certain truths. This is how Galileo discovered that the 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 earth orbited around the sun rather than the other way around. The scientific method, uh, which was really only started with Francis Bacon in the mid-17th century, used observation to develop models which were mainly based on mathematics and geometry. (coughs) And then these models were tested by experiment. So this is the fundamental, if you like, um, the scientific method, again put fairly crudely. You make observations. From those observations, you um, make measurements. You turn those observations into numbers or patterns. And from those numbers or patterns, you devise a model. And that model can then be tested by experiment. And if the experiment um, works, 
And I've done a lot of I've done a lot of experimentation in physics, and you, you're you're always fiddling the results. You've got to remember this. You're always t- it never ever works right, but it works within the margin of error. My very first lecture when I went I went to Imperial College, the very first lecture was by a wonderful lady called Lady Anne Thorne, um, uh, who who then went on to run things at CERN for a while. Um, she taught us our first mini-course in statistics. And she said, the thing you're going to learn about physics is it never, ever works. What you've got to do is learn statistics so you know how far off not working it's been, yeah? how accurate your results are. And she said that science, she really pumped this into us. She said that science, you can never prove anything. You can only verify it. You can only verify it within certain range of uh, statistical error. The only law that can be proved is the second law of thermodynamics. That can be proved. But everything else is, uh, can only be verified. So we've got this, this scientific method. Observation, measurement on those observations or patterns on the basis of the measurements and the patterns, the mathematics and the geometry, you come up with a model. That model can then be tested. If the test works, more or less, then you can verify the model and you've verified your theory, more or less. Now, religion, and including Buddhism, receives its truth by revelation. When I first heard this about Buddhism, I thought, Buddhism received by revelation? That's ridiculous. You know, it's, I'm so used to, you know, God coming down and sort of setting fire to bushes and getting Moses to uh, um, hear his message. Um, but when you think about it, it is a truth by revelation. The Buddha became enlightened. His enlightenment was revealed to him personally. Not by God, for sure, through his own efforts, through his own investigation. But it, it was revealed to him. He understood it intuitively immediately, directly. It's not something that he did measurements and it's not something that he derived rationally. It's something that came all of a sudden. It was a revelation in that, in that sense of the word. So Buddhist truth is, is a revealed truth. The truth appears to a particular individual. Um, that truth is then communicated to others And it's communicated through the use mainly of images, symbols and myths, including doctrines. When a a Buddhist truth is communicated through a doctrine, when it comes down to it, that doctrine is really only a symbol. It's It's only a myth. It's not a scientifically proven fact. Yeah, so... Buddhism communicates through myths, even, even the doctrines. Even the doctrines, if you like, are poetic. I'll come back to that a little bit later on. So I think we can include philosophy and we can include the arts in this same kind of method, methodology. There's a methodology of, of, of truth which is revealed to, to an individual. That is then communicated to other individuals through the use of Poetry, arts, symbol, myth, legend, and um, philosophy. 
Now that knowledge, when it's communicated to somebody else, the other person receives it. They resonate with it. I, th- I think this word um, um, res- resonance. What's the what's the time? Anakampa. This word's a very important Buddhist word. It means a sort of uh, flickering with, resonating with. So when when an individual hears the truth, then they 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 resonate with it. They they connect with it. They um they they know it to be true. So it's not a matter of it's been tested, that it's been experimented with. It's it's a, it's a it's an immediate, a direct knowledge that this is true. Can't ever be proved, of course. The same with science. Neither science nor religion can really be proved. But they've got different methodologies, different ways of coming to uh, to a truth. One is through observation, modelling, and experimentation, and the other is through um, a personal communication, a resonance uh, between the discoverer and the person to whom he or she is communicating it. In the Buddhist scriptures, there's a very famous text called the Kalama Sutta, um, in which advice is given to the Kalamas, who are a sort of tribe, um, about um, how to tell the truth, how to, how to judge a religious truth. And... Um, I'm sure many of you are aware of this, but uh, let, me just, let me just read that through um, slowly so we can reflect on each of the phrases. The Buddha says to the Kalamas, Come, Kalamas, do not rely on what has been acquired by repeated hearing. Just because you've told, been told it a thousand times, it's not true. Yeah? Some government officials should uh, pay attention to that nor on tradition. Just because it happens to be the tradition of your people doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Nor on rumour, nor something that you've just heard but you haven't been able to check out for yourself. Nor on what is written in scripture. It's very unusual for a religion to say this, but the Buddha is saying you cannot rely on what is written in scripture nor on surmise, nor on axiom. By axiom, I think this means by logical deduction. You can't rely on a spiritual truth because it's logical or illogical. Not upon reasoning. You can't reason yourself to spiritual truths. Nor upon a bias towards a notion that's been pondered over. It's getting kind of scary, isn't it? nor upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration, this monk, this teacher, is our teacher. So the Buddha is saying that none of those in itself is a suitable criteria for judging the truth of something. What he then goes on to say is, Kalamas, when you, you yourselves know these things are good, these things are not blamable. These things are praised by the wise. Undertaken and observed, these things lead to benefit and happiness. Then enter on and abide in them. So let, let me read that again. This is, this is the criteria. These things are good. These things, sorry, Kalamas, when you yourselves know these things are good, these things are not blamable. 
These things are praised by the wise, undertaken and observed. These things lead to the benefit and happiness. Enter on and abide with them. That little phrase, these things are praised by the wise, is an interesting one, isn't it? Because the Buddha doesn't actually say who the wise are. He's relying on the fact that we've got our own sort of intuition of what wisdom actually is. So we can say to ourselves, well, would the wise really, would they think this was good? So it's not only my opinion, as it were, it's my understanding of what the wise might think about, about these, uh, these matters. So that's quite, um, uh, I think, a really good description of this sort of intuitive, there's an intuitive response, there's a resonance with the truth that um, convinces us, uh, at least partially, at least for, you know, for the moment, that such and such a thing is said to be true. So the truth is communicated in Buddhism intuitively, um, although rationality and common sense are not to be rejected. Yeah. This idea of uh, you know, truth, wisdom being kind of mad and being the crazier the, the idea, the more truthful it must be, that's, that doesn't really fit either. So we don't abandon rationality, we don't abandon common sense but we recognise that, the, that these things have a limit and that the truth goes further than that. It's something which is intuitively understood. Now, I want to characterise, just, just for the sake of argument, these two myth- methods by rationality, in terms of the scientific um, um, experiment, experimental method, and myth as the, uh, the language of... Uh, of religion and particularly the language of Buddhism. So what I'm saying is that Buddhism speaks the language of myth, even when it's speaking rationally. And um, science speaks the language of rationality and abhor- abhors the, um, the idea of myth. Just a slight um, divergence here. Um, there are three pe- I, I'm very interested in the Elizabethan era, Elizabeth I days. Um, and I think the reason I'm interested in it, it's, it, it comes just before the, um, the Western Enlightenment. So you've got people alive at that time who were um, bright people, intelligent, bright people, um, who were struggling uh, to develop the idea of science, um, scientific experiment. But they were also, um, they were also very much in tune with, with myth. And there's three people in that area that I in that era that I, I particularly like to mention. Uh, the first is Spencer, um, and in particular Spencer's Fairy Queen, which I've been reading for several years. Um, this is a book um, which is entirely myth. It's it's a gloriously rich um, universe of myth. You've got dragons, you've got knights, you've got damsels in distress, uh, you've got very, very bright... In fact, the damsels are a hell of a lot brighter than the knights, which is quite interesting. It's the damsels that get the knights out of all the trouble that they get in by just rushing off and hacking each other. So it's, um, uh, there's all sorts of gods, there's all sorts of um, semi-human beings, there's all sorts of weird places that people go to. There's mountains, there's hermits. It's, it's unbelievably rich text. 
all total mythology. You never ever learn, for example, what the knight has to eat. Because the only time he ever eats anything is when it's magic food that's moving him off somewhere else. They never seem to sleep unless they're dreaming something, uh, which is part of the story. Um, they never go to any towns. It's, it's all adventure, mystery, um, fantastic, absolutely fantastic figures. So Spencer, for me, is like myth, just total myth. On the other hand, you've got Shakespeare. Now, one, one, I don't, I'm not a literary historian, I think, but what it strikes me is that, that what Shakespeare's done is he's taken the gods and he's expressed their power in human form. So he writes about love, hate, ambition, envy, jealousy, power, all of those things, but he writes them about, he gives, he gives human, he gives the voices to human beings, which I believe was a new thing. It's almost as though with Shakespeare, the gods come down to earth and, and um, um, occupy uh, human beings. So he tells the stories, he tells the same, he talks about the same truths, but, he, but the, those truths are spoken through the mouths of human beings, most of the time. One of the interesting times when they're not, of course, is in The Tempest. And in The Tempest we have um, Prospero, the magician, who um, deals with both the angelic and the demonic. He's got um, Ariel and um, Caliban. So Prospero is sort of, um, although he's very much a human being, he's still he's still sort of in touch with um, with the um, with the spirits, with the um, in their more kind of original forms. Now Prospero is said to represent my third favourite person of that era, which is um, Doctor John Dee. Uh, he's not as well known as the other two, but for me, he's an absolutely fascinating character. He was a scholar. He had the largest library in Europe at the time, in Mortlake. Um, he was an astronom astrologer, an astronomer. He was um, an alchemist. Um, he was um, an, an engineer. He was, he was very much the kind of Renaissance man. He was the Queen's astrologer. Um, he was never, ever invited to court. And you find in his writings these, these, these long uh, resentments about never being invited to court. And it says in his diary, the Queen offered me £50. She only gave me 10 You know, there's, amongst all of this, this sort of very subtle stuff he's writing, there's these lovely little comments. So you get very much a, t uh, a sense from his diaries of a very of his humanity. Anyway, he was, um, he, was, he was a scientist, although an alchemist. He was convinced that the secrets to the universe, and this is one of the main points about his life, I think, the secrets of the universe would be unlocked through numbers and geometry. Now, his approach to numbers and geometry was fairly sort of mystical. But he, had this, he somehow had this knowledge that it was by the application of numbers and measurement and geometry that the, the secrets of the physical use, universe could be opened. So to me, he he's sort of seems to be someone who's struggling there on, on the borderline of, of science. And for this reason, I think he really fascinates me. 
Another thing that he did, and then I'll get back to my talk, um, another thing that he did was um, he communicated with angels. Um, well, at least he didn't. His friend Edward Kelly could use a crystal ball through which he could communicate with angels, but Kelly didn't know who they were, whereas John Dee knew the names of the angels. So Kelly would describe the angel, John Dee would know who they were, and they would develop this long communication with angels over a period of about 15 years or so. People around them were so... This was such an ordinary thing that another man, Walsingham, who was the Queen's spymaster, as he's been called, um, he and Dee tried to set up this, this method of communication so they could get messages from Vienna through to London by having someone in Vienna with a crystal ball talking to an angel, giving them a message, and then getting the message back from the crystal ball in, um, in, in London. I mean, the NSA and um, CGHQ could have done really well with somebody like, uh, like John Dee, I think. So, um, three wonderful characters that between, who were living, who were contemporaries, one of whom was writing entirely mythologically, one of whom, whom was writing, let's say, in a humanist way, psych psychologically, and one who was sort of swirling around in the mists between those two. Anyway, conflicts between religion and science um, seem to me to occur when the application of the method of one is illegitimately applied to the realm of the other. For example, when Christian creationists use a pseudoscience to support their creation myth. They've gone into the wrong realm. You know, their, their, their creation myth cannot be supported by science, so they best just leave that alone. On the other hand, scientists refuse to uh, accept the existence of ghosts, angels and gods just because they can't be recorded on photographic film, just because they can't weigh them or they can't measure them. And yet, these forces do exist, though not in that sort of literalistic way. A very tricky area here is, is the area of healing, I think, because it seems that some illnesses can best be um, cured through what you might call more spiritual methods. Um, I've heard on the radio the other day of some... some um, well-educated Muslims who believed that um, they had been cured of mental disturbances by having the jinns driven out of them by, um, by, the, uh, um, by the priests. On the other hand, I'm not going to go to a shaman if I've got a broken leg or I've got cancer. I mean, I much prefer, uh, or a headache, I'd much prefer uh, Western medicine to deal with some of those things. So it's an interesting area, it's a tricky area, because it's an area where the two methods do come in conflict. So what are the legitimate realms of science and, and Buddhism? Which, why should, what, this is what I believe, I think. I think why I can be a scientist and a Buddhist is that I think there are realms where science is applicable and there are realms where Buddhist approach is applicable. 
that those two realms are different, but both crucially important to human existence. Now, we can get some help from, um, from Buddhism through the teaching of the five niyamas, the five orders of conditionality. Just to remind you what they are. What, what, they, what they come from is an analysis of one of human experience. And we think of them in this way, that human experience is going to be analysed into these five different orders of conditionality. I must say that what I'm about to say is a sort of a kind of interpretation. Um, it's, uh, it's not exactly what's said in Buddhism. It's probably not exactly what's said in science either, but it sort of, I think it gives us an idea of the, the realms that we're, um, we're working in. So first of all, according to Buddhism, we have the Uttu Niyama. The Uttu Niyama is the order of material form. It's the characteristics of objective form. It isn't quite the material world. Well, it isn't the material world in the way that we understand it. It's the, it's the, it's the material content of our objective experience, which from a Buddhist perspective is a slightly different matter. However, I think we can think of it, because of our background, as the material world. And this exploration of this realm, of the Yutunima, corresponds pretty much to the area of physics and chemistry. So I think if physics and chemistry stick to the Yutunima, the order of objective material form, then they're not going to go wrong. Now, but this area has never been of any interest to Buddhism. Other than saying that um, it's of no interest to Buddhism. So the, the, only, the only time the Buddha really refers to the, to the material world is to say that the self isn't in the material world. Yeah? We are not, in essence, material entities. We're not material things. We are something different to that. And that's about as far as it goes. You do get some wonderful mythological descriptions of the material world. This idea of island universes, for example, that our Earth is part of a universe, which is like a big flat dish, which is floating in space, along with countless other big flat dish universes spread through the whole infinity of space. Some people have said, well, it sounds a little bit like um, galaxies. And it does. It's got the same sort of immensity, the same sort of sense of enormity. It's a certainly a lot bigger than a, a traditional Christian world, which is about two and a half, about, about 250 million miles across and 5,000 years old, which is pretty teeny. So at least Buddhism has got this idea of, uh, of, of enormity, of magnificence of, uh, um, in, its, in its background. Edward Konzer made a very, he's a, an important Buddhist scholar from the 50s and 60s, last century. Um, Edward Konzer made a very important point, I think. And he said that because Buddhism never took an interest in the material world, the Chinese never developed science. Yeah? Because Buddhism tended to draw attention away from the, the, the um the material world, the Chinese, who were actually very practical 
um, didn't invest energy in investigating it. He thought that if Buddhism had taken more interest in the material world, then the Chinese would have developed um, the scientific method long before um, the West did. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it makes this point that Buddhism has got no interest particularly in the material world, what we would call the material world. So what's the next order of conditionality recognised by Buddhism is the Bija Niyama. Now this is the order of living beings. So it's one more stage. It's, it's, it's not just dead material, it's living things. The fact that things are alive, the fact that we ourselves are alive. This is a different order of conditionality. Again, Buddhist thought in this area is pretty minor and pretty fanciful. Some of the descriptions of um, well, just where beings get born from um, is, uh, is pretty, uh, pretty um, fanciful. Um, the idea of, of uh, well, yeah, just the whole biological realm, really. When it does occur, it's, it's just pretty, pretty odd. Um, one of the wonderful ones, of course, is that human beings, this is a Tibetan view, human beings are descended from the mating of a monkey and a female demon. So that's, that's our background, folks. Um, uh, they got half of it right, didn't they? They got the monkey. Maybe they got the female demon right as well. We'll find out later, perhaps. Um, these these myths uh, they do, they do have they do have some truth to them. You know, we are kind of half monkey, half demon, aren't we? You know, we we've got great capabilities for great evil, and we've also got sort of um, at least on a physical level, we've got the abilities of monkeys. So, um, you know, there is some truth in that. Anyway, this, the Bijiniyama, I think, is, is the realm of biology. That's, that's the realm of biology all the way from the study and analysis of plants up to, um, you know, the study of DNA and, uh, and uh, genetic codes and so on. The next level of conditionality is the Manoniyama, and this is the order of sense consciousness and instinctive response. So consciousness, in this case, is just, is just simple sense consciousness. It's the fact that we see things, we hear things, we're conscious of smells, tastes, touches, and also, according to Buddhism, ideas. That we're conscious of ideas that flitter through our brain, as no doubt you noticed in the meditation earlier, Ideas just float through your brain unbidden, but you do sense them. You recognise that they're there. So you're conscious of these ideas popping into your brain, very much in the same way as you're, you're conscious of you know, visual stimuli coming into the brain. But it's just, it's a, it's just this very passive um, consciousness of one's environment. And it's the response to that as well. The immediate response of sensing something which is pleasurable, or painful. Again, Buddhism is not particularly interested in this. It just said, okay, what simple consciousness occurs, it happens. Um, and the simple uh, instinctive response to it just happens. That's all because of what happened in the past. It's got nothing really to do with now other than being our immediate experience. Because the next level is the really important one. The next level is the the karma, the karma niyama. Before I go on to that, though, I should just say I think 
I think the manoniema, this order of um, simple consciousness, is also quite problematic for science because you can't measure consciousness. Um, you can measure the effects of consciousness, the effects in the brain, the effects in the body and so on, but you can't, you can't get your tape measure up against consciousness itself. itself. So this presents a difficulty for the, the scientific method. So the next level is the, the karmaniyama. And this is the order of emotions and willed actions. Not only do we have this simple consciousness, but we have a, also have a consciousness of much more complex emotional responses that seem to... They, they occur in response to external stimuli, but they, they occur within us. They, they're, part of, they're part of our being. And this is a different, this is a different kind of level of, um, of experience. And it's also something that we have control over to some degree or another. That we, we act willfully according to the emotions that are driving us. So those emotions are actually our will. They're, they're the drive. When we feel a strong desire for something, that's our human will in the form of desire reaching out towards something. When we feel a strong um, um, desire to remove ourselves from, from something, a hatred, then again, that, that hatred is a will. It's something that's willed. And... Buddhism recognised that it's these forces, these emotional forces, that create the kind of life that we live. Whether we experience a happy life or a painful life depends upon these, these forces, these willed actions, the emotions and the actions that they stimulate. So this is, this is what the Karmaniyam is all about. It's about this whole realm of our emotions and the actions that those emotions drive. Now, the ancients recognised these and recognised their power in our lives. You know, these things like love, hate, ambition, uh, desire for power, compassion, friendship, contentment, joy, and so on. All of these things have very big effects in our lives. In a way, they drive our lives much more than the material phenomena around us. The world that we live in is much more the creation of these internal forces than it is of the material circumstances, which are important. Now, this, this recognition, I think, has been there since the beginning of time. Um, people didn't understand it. They didn't understand it, how it worked. So these, these were the gods. These were the gods, the forces, the unseen forces the non-material forces that drove us and drove us into either very dark places or very bright places. Greek drama, for example, is based on this idea of these forces, the forces at work. And Greek drama developed into Greek religion. So you can see where religion comes from an attempt to grasp the nature of these uh, spiritual forces, which, as I say, are even more important than those that the material uh, conditions that we find ourselves in. Now, science has very little to say about these forces um, because it can't measure them. 
it can't get at them. Um, we can't get the numbers to them. We can't get the patterns to them very well. Psychology, of course, is the attempt. We're making the attempt. But I think most scientists would not really be able to call psychology a science. It's still a borderline. John Dee would be a good psychologist. He's sort of, it's still borderline. You know, it's halfway between myth. You know, you've got people like Jung on one hand, and then you've got um, people like Skinner on the other hand, who are perhaps rather more hard scientists. So psychology covers this, this sort of, um, this difficult ground. However, to, to deny the existence of the gods, to deny the existence of these forces, is to, is to me complete, is completely stupid. It's obviously wrong. And if you deny them, then they start to uh, take over. The gods um, are very clever at manipulating us. I put down in my notes here, Venus, for example, has got a permanent job in Medicine Avenue. You know, they, they, they pay her vast sums of money to, to work her, her magic through the adverts. Um, Mars has got an office in the Pentagon, I'm sure of it. Yeah. And Mammon, of course, has a penthouse in the city of London. But this order, this karma niyama, is of primary interest to, to Buddhism. In fact, the Buddha made it clear on several occasions that his teaching was concerned only with the karma niyama and the next one, the dharma niyama. From the Buddhist perspective, the recognition of the variety of emotional states and their relations with each other, with the happiness and pain they produce, is the main work of Buddhist practice. So I'll say more of this in a minute. However, there's another order. There's a higher order. And this is the Dharma Niyama. Now, the Dharma Niyama is a realm of consciousness which is not normally within our um, awareness. It's, it's a realm of consciousness which is beyond this world. So it's recognised by all religions and many artists, poets, musicians, painters, um, they've all spoken about this higher, not all of them, but a number of them, or some of them, have spoken about this higher order. Interpretations of the experience of that higher differ widely. For example, some people feel that they come into the presence of a creator God. Other people feel that their individual self has dissolved into a kind of universal self. Other people, more like us in this room perhaps, um, experience it as a liberation from the constraints of this world and so on. So no matter what the interpretation is, um, there's something beyond this world. There's something, uh, there's, there's something beyond this consciousness which is dominated by a sense of self. And the recognition of the existence of this order is really the prerequisite for a higher spiritual life. Now it may be, it may not be that we've had experience of this, although I actually think far more people have had experience of it than um, we would normally recognise. It's something that you know, many people have, uh, have had a touch of, um, usually when they were relatively young, um, quite often at a time of great sort of emotional upset and so on. There's been, there's been a sense of something more, a connection with something more. 
Now this realm of conditionality is completely beyond science because it's beyond normal human consciousness and it's therefore beyond rationality. All attempts at some kind of rational uh, understanding of this order are at best elusive and at worst highly misleading. For example, I think if coming into contact with this higher order, one is personally in contact with the creator of the universe and you believe that to be true, this is a very dangerous idea, as we've seen. So any kind of, any kind of interpretation, any kind of reason, reasonable interpretation of that experience needs to be handled very delicately, very carefully. Now, each of these orders can be recognised in the here and now, in this, in this body, in this existence, at least to some degree. But each of them is also involved in a process, uh, an evolution. So, together, the evolutionary processes of all of the neomas comprise a vision of a cosmic evolutionary process. If we think of the material one, life, ongoing simple consciousness, karma niyama, the dharma niyama, if we think of all of those five orders going on together, these, these constitute um, a vision of a kind of cosmic evolutionary process into which both science and Buddhism fit. They have their place. The realm of science is the first two niyamas, the, the, the Uttu Niyama, material things, Bija Niyama, living things. The Mano Niyama is a kind of um, neutral ground, I think. The Mano Niyama, the simple consciousness, is really a consciousness of the individual in the moment, just now. It's just like what you, what you get, what you're given to work with. And the Karma and Dharma Niyamas are the orders in which we see the drama of the spiritual evolution of the individual. And this leads up right to the, uh, to, the, to, to the transcendental. And these two are the realm of Buddhism. This is what Buddhism is concerned with. So I think as long as we keep science to the Uttaniyama and the Bijaniyama and Buddhism to the Kalamaniyama and the Dharmaniyama, then we're not going to fall in conflict. We're going to feel that the two the two sort of um, traditions, um, uh, disciplines, uh, complement each other. Got five minutes. Just a few words about uh, Buddhism before I uh, I uh, stop talking. Um, the karmaniyama. This is these complex of emotions uh, that lead an individual to live in a particular way. Um, in moving from the manoniyama, which is purely instinctual, into the karmaniyama, the difference is that we're bringing in the, the whole idea of individual will. Even if that will is unconscious. So, you know, if, if, you, um, if you fall in love, for example, you don't usually decide to fall in love. Actually, I think you do. But it, it seems like you don't. It seems like it just happens, you know. Um, so that it's, like, it's not my fault I fell in love, you know. That's what we might say. Um, but but, it, but it, that is still one's will. 
there is a will there, even if it's unconscious. So, I mean, in Freudian sense, sort of unconscious and um, um, wills are, are still part of the will. They don't have to be just conscious. So one of the effects of this um, willed action is that we generate a particular sense of ourselves. One of the ways we can see this is that if our, if our emotions lead us into certain habits, um, I like, you know, my bagel in the morning with peanut butter on one half and marmite on the other half. I've done that now for two years, and if there's no bagels, I get really, you know, a bit, bit angry with myself for not having got the bagels. So I'm a, I'm a morning bagel eater. I've created a sense of self. If that is contradicted, then I can get I can get irritated. The same with my coffee, and I could go on all sorts of other things. So within the whole complexity of life, one builds up all sorts of habits that define yourself. And that definition of a self is what happens quite naturally in the karma niyama. And on the level of the karma niyama, this is a perfectly good thing. This is what should happen. All one wants to make sure is that the self that you create is a happy, contented and satisfied self, not one that is riddled with pain, difficulty and suffering. And certain habits will give rise to happiness, other habits will give rise to pain. So Buddhism tries to clarify what are the good habits, the skillful habits, and what are the bad habits, the unskillful habits, to give rise to a happy existence. Um, However, no matter how much we work to free ourselves from suffering in this way, we find that we can never quite do it. Um, it's almost like we can't, we can't quite get it worked out so that everything is perfect. And there's always something that's not quite right. This is what Buddhism calls dukkha. It's that um, it's not quite right. What is needed here is the move to the next level, to the Dharma The thing that's not quite right is actually oneself. The fact that one has um, a sense of self, that is what causes the discomfort. So one works, again, through Buddhist practices, through the practice of ethics, meditation, um, study and so on. You work to try and overcome that sense of self, and if you can, when you do, something else comes through. And that something else is the Dharma Niyama. So this liberation from the self, this enter, entry into the Dharma Niyama, is not something that can be willed into existence. It's actually something that's experienced by not doing anything, by letting go. So it's letting go of the self that frees us into the, into the higher consciousness. Um, it cannot be actually applied by making more and more effort. But once one does, once one's got a taste of this higher order, um, the Buddha often refers to it as the taste of freedom. You get a taste of this liberation. If you start to cherish that taste, you start to... Um, be aware of when you get sort of a feeling of it, when you resonate with it, coming back to this word resonance that I was talking about earlier, when you start to resonate with that sense of freedom, if you apply yourself to that 
rather than to the um, affairs of every day or affairs of trying to make oneself happy. The Buddha is a symbol of that state. Um, What we do is we try as Buddhists, we try to invest the symbol of the Buddha with all of these little inklings that we get of freedom. So we start to see the Buddha as the freed, the liberated, the emancipated individual. So that eventually the, the, the image, as it were, starts to, we, we start to hook things onto it and it starts to take on a life of its own and it starts to express that quality of freedom so that whenever one comes into the presence of the Buddha, whether it be a painting or an image or in the Pali scriptures, you start to feel, you, you, you get used to that sort of resonance, that, that sort of freedom. There's, I've been looking a lot at early Christianity, the Desert Fathers, and um, Christianity has always had this struggle between will and um, free will and, um, and predestination, between the will of the individual and the will of God, between works and predestination. It's been there throughout its whole history. At the time of the Desert Fathers, um, they applied themselves to this and they talked about two things. They talked about the will of the individual and the grace of God. Now their, their method of practice was that they said you initially you must apply your will, your personal will to your practice, to your prayer, to your fasting or whatever, to your meditation, to your practice of ethics, to the development of friend, spiritual friendship, and so on and so forth, we would say. You, apply, you, you do it. You make sure you do it. You put effort into doing it. At some time, unbidden by you, something will come through that. Something will get through the crack. And one starts to respond to a sense of liberation. For the Desert Fathers, it was, it was feeling the presence of God. They would feel the presence of God. For them, incidentally, it wasn't the creator God. They, uh, they didn't like that stuff. So, but anyway, they, um, they felt the presence of God. And, um, and they said, once you started to feel the presence of God, you applied your will differently. So instead of applying your will to the, the ethical practices that you were doing, your meditation and so on, what you did was you applied your will to moving the obstructions to the grace of God out of the way. So there'd be certain things that you knew that you do, that you did, that got in the way of the grace of God. What you would do is try and push those out of the way so that the grace could come through more easily. <coughs> Eventually, of course, the grace of God takes over and you don't have to do anything. You just go with it. Now, from the Buddhist perspective, in the Karma we have to apply our will. And this is where we do most of our work. We make an effort to, our, to do our practices, ethical practices, meditation, so on and so forth. There comes a time when we something comes through. Technically, as you know, it's sort of stream entry is one of the descriptions. You feel the pull of the stream. You start to feel that pull. Thereafter, the practice becomes slightly different. As long as you feel that pull... You do everything you can. You apply your will to assisting that pull. 
until the pull becomes so well established, so strong, that you don't have to do anything. You just, you just go with it. So this, I think, represents the gradual entry into the effect of the Dharma Niyama. And this, of course, is the ultimate purpose, the, um, the ultimate aim of the Buddhist spiritual life. And when in that kind of case, whether the, the Buddha, as it were, is real. What happens when you abandon yourself is something else happens. Milarepa says, when you learn to see nothing, then something is seen. But you can't say what that something is. It's, much, it's, it's, a, it's a magnetism, it's a pull, it's a resonance. So what I've talked about uh, this evening is a sort of a vision of cosmic, the cosmic evolutionary process. Uh, which I think quite comfortably brings together science and Buddhism, each with its own appropriate realm of investigation. Science is concerned with the elements of the evolution of the material world and of living beings. Buddhism has very little, in fact has nothing really, to contribute to the understanding of these orders, but has concerned itself exclusively with the dynamics of the mind, and the development of a healthy and happy self-consciousness. And crucially, it goes beyond that to take the practitioner into another level of evolution, which is an evolution which is beyond the realm of self, this existence, this self-centered existence, um, and take us on into, into, a, into a higher realm. So, I like this vision. Because I think it's sort of it's it's broad. It provides a context for the spiritual life, in which one can really appreciate um, the the vast achievements of the the scientific tradition, the Western tradition. But it also, I think, I, I hope, I would like to hope that it could, in some way, open the door to people like um, can't remember his name, the scientists, uh, the anti-Christian, Dawkins, yeah. Open, open, open a door to someone like him in a way to say, well, okay, what you're saying is right, perfectly right, no argument with that at all, but just open your mind to something a bit more, which has been well attested by people in all sorts of traditions, and I'd say in particular, um, and particularly effectively, of course, in the Buddhist tradition, because that's the one that I follow. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.